If you don't have your tickets, there might be uh, some that are maybe turned in this morning. Talk to uh, Karen back there at the, the Welcome Center desk. Maybe, maybe not. Do we have any, Karen? We got a few. That kind of thing. But uh, and come, come early, mix and mingle. This is our gathering. Just like it was a month ago today, we had our first gathering, which was at our house, and we had a great group there. This is a gathering, but we're doing outreach because that's a part of what the gathering's purpose is for: is to envision and equip and expand, extend our ministry as a church in this valley. So come. Thing starts at four. Be there at three thirty. We'll hang out, and afterwards, I don't know. You know. Gather some people, food court, I don't know if it's still open, those kinds of things, restaurants, just making an evening. I know we got school tomorrow, two weeks of spring break, it's going to be a rough one. <laughs> right, parents? Get those kids back in the routine, but uh, it's going to be um, a great time together tonight. But the Case for Christ subject, and I almost wish that I could start the, the series on the heels of the movie kind of deal, but uh, what we're going to talk about today will sort of whet your appetite for uh, the film tonight. The film is about Lee Strobel. And his wife, Leslie, Lee was a journalist for the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist. His wife started going to a church, and that church ended up uh, changing her life because they presented Jesus Christ to her. And um, Lee, uh, to say the least, was concerned that she was in a cult. And so he began to investigate the case for Christ to disprove her, and God worked in his life in some miraculous ways. So um, we're going to take on this subject of case for Christ, and we're going to walk it out over the next uh, four weeks. And uh, next week uh, is Easter, of course, and I want to encourage you to take your invites and invite people to be a part of one of the two services next week at 8.30 or 10 o'clock. But we are going to not just investigate the case for Christ, but see how Christ can come in and heal and change and transform lives and family units and marriages as a whole. And so please... um, Continue to pray. Take the initiative to reach out. Can I pray for us as we step into our time? Lord, here this morning, we rejoice. Uh, We don't have palm branches. We don't have coats to throw down. You're not riding in on a physical donkey, Lord. But we offer to you our yielded hearts to hear from you on this Palm Sunday morning when we remember and celebrate your entrance into Jerusalem. It's hard for us to comprehend all that transpired in those seven days. So intense. So much packed in drama, pain, suffering, life. Lord, may we as a people, whether we're followers of you this morning or we're just sort of seeking out what the God thing means to us in our life, may we take these seven days and yield our hearts to you, to receive from you, to hear from you, and to offer back to you our praise, our worship, but Lord, also our obedience. For the center of all history pivots on this Passion Week. In your name we pray. Amen. So this is my statement to you. We make a lot of decisions, but I want to tell you this morning what the most important decision is that you will ever make in life, and it's this. The most important decision that you will ever make in life relates relates to your belief in Jesus Christ and your response to whether to follow him or not. You got other kinds of decisions going on? I mean, maybe maybe you're moving. We had some folks move here recently, some people moving in the, in the near future here. Maybe it's a job-related issue. Maybe you got decisions about your kids. Maybe there's health decisions you're trying to. We're always batting around decisions. But I'll let you know up front, this is where it's at ultimately. The most important decision you will ever make in life relates to your belief in Jesus Christ and your response, whether to follow him or not. And guess what? It's not only the most important decision for you. It's the most important decision for the person seated to your left and to your right. The one that you're going to see at work tomorrow. Every human being will need to face this most important decision. 
And so when we spend time talking about the case for Christ, it's not like, oh, this is the Jesus religious stuff. Excuse me, let's go over here and compartmentalize and spend time on the spiritual thing. No, this is the big one. All kinds of world events. A lot of them were packed in this week, weren't they? We had the whole Syria thing. We had the chemical um, attack that they used over there. And you saw young children die. How tragic. Tragic. We had a Supreme Court justice that was approved this week. The guy from China was here this week talking with our president, trying to build a relationship, right? Other kinds of big stories going on. We're trying to see who makes it into the NBA playoffs here. I know that's important to some of you, right? Yeah. But none of that compares to this question here. And I want to just remind us of that. I know because some of us, even as longtime followers of Jesus, well, of course, of course, Carrie, I got that. I'll, I'll do the Jesus nod. No, this is the most important decision. In fact, my son, Ryan, when he came out of the theater, he called me at well, midnight or whatever. And he says, you know, Dad was good for me because he lives in a world um, where standing up for Christ isn't something that's readily, um, you know, taken on. And he said, it just caused me to want to sharpen my own thinking, to be able to be able to give a reason for my faith, to be able to encourage people. And all of us in these four weeks of this series need to own and embrace what it means to make that most important decision and how to impact other people with that decision. You see, it's a decision that's gone on for a long time. In fact, uh, being Palm Sunday, I'd like us to do something. I'd like you to turn in your scriptures to Matthew 21. And in Matthew 21 is recorded what happened on that day that we refer to as Palm Sunday. And I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. Will you do that? Psalm 21. It's the most important decision that we will ever make in our life. And it was the most important decision for every single person that stood by and observed that day as recorded in Matthew 21. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage. On the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of them on ahead. He said, go into the village over there, he said, and you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them and bring them here. If anyone asks you, what are you doing? Just say, well, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately send them. This was done, by the way, to fulfill the prophecy that was spoken. Verse 5, tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. Well, the two disciples did as Jesus said. They brought the animals to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their coats on the road ahead of Jesus, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. He was in the center of the procession, and the crowds all around him were shouting. They were declaring, praise God for the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. Why, the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred when he entered. Who is this? They asked. And their crowds replied, it's Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, Jesus, he entered the temple and he began to drive out the merchants and their customers. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the stalls of those selling doves. He said, scriptures declare my temple will be called a place of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame, well, they came to him. And he healed them. He healed them right there in the temple. Well, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these miraculous signs and heard even the little children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. But they were indignant and asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. You can be seated.
So the most important question for us this morning actually has been a most important question through all of history. You go back to that Palm Sunday and they were observing. Can you see yourself pictured there along the road and Jesus is entering in on this donkey fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy and they're declaring. You know, actually what they were doing is Psalm 113 through 118. All right, it's, it's sort of a package deal in Jewish tradition and in the Hebrew scriptures. They would always declare and proclaim those psalms during times of holidays and processions and celebrations. And this in particular would be true of Passover. Passover is there. So some of these things of declaring, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and glory in the highest, right? They were declaring out of the psalms, Psalm 118. And they thought that this Jesus would be their Messiah, That's why they were celebrating. But some people, maybe on the fringes, they were looking, I don't know. And they were asking the question, well, who is this? Well, this is the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Really? Well, he had had a track record. They'd heard he'd been doing some miraculous healings, but he hadn't been on the ground that long, really two and a half, three years. But everybody that is a human being has to check out that question. Who do you believe Jesus is? And what is the response, the disposition of our heart towards that? I want you to know that the adversary, there is one, his name's Satan, fallen Lucifer, an archangel. He knows who Jesus is. And he is working overtime to blind people to that fact. He might be working overtime in your life for the scales to be peeled back to fully see who is this Jesus. He'll keep you caught up in busyness. He'll keep our culture and our world distracted on so many different turns. He'll even start to undermine the very idea of truth itself in a postmodern culture. Because he doesn't want people to fall down and worship and to praise the one who is. Don't you find that passage interesting? I read it to my wife this morning as I was leaving. I said, honey, here's your job description today. Even the children were declaring. And can you imagine the Pharisees and the religious people, the pastors? They were indignant. Shut those kids up. I can't believe that. And Jesus said, yeah, haven't you heard that even the children and infants will be taught to declare my name? Now, Jesus, when he walked into the temple, he wasn't very happy with what was going on and he disrupted things and everybody's taking a few steps back. Whoa. Because he is broken inside when he sees not just churches and church communities, but sees worlds and communities and cultures and neighborhoods and nations who do not worship him. He's broken because he is the way, the truth, and the life as he then would declare. In the um, making of this film, The Case for Christ, the screenwriter, Brian Bird, he took the book that Lee Strobel wrote following his conversion to follow Christ. And he says this about the movie that you'll see tonight. I think this movie is for the Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, it is going to be an inoculation against doubt. For them... To help them alleviate their doubt in an age when moral relativism is huge, right? Everybody's questioning truth, having to fact check the truth. The culture is in deep confusion right now. And I believe that this movie is an answer. It is the path out of confusion. So it is for skeptics and believers alike. What are you doing with that decision about who Jesus is? Watch this clip, Lee Strobel, struggling with what to do. I thought you were banished. (laughs) Hey, what's the matter? You people and your God, you just, you know, you talk in circles, you offer... You offer just enough evidence, but never enough to be conclusive. Then you fill in all the gaps with, oh, well, yeah, you just got to have faith. It's a bunch of nonsense. You're really irritating. You know that? Don't start with me, Kenny. You don't waste a lick of time. 
bragging to all of us how great a reporter you are. So why can't you put up or shut up on this story? What are you even talking about? Here's where the chili meets the cheese, my friend. One of my heroes was C.S. Lewis, a man who began as a skeptic, much like yourself. At the end of his journey, you know what he said? He said, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. So you want your wife back? Well, hey, guess what? People in hell want ice water. Not everybody gets everything they want. Stop blaming me and the church and God and do your job. Stack up the evidence, follow the facts, and write the story, win or lose. I'm good to go. One of my challenges in our time together is to make sure that we don't just get bogged down with a lot of facts because there's so much passion and truth and life in being able to follow Jesus. It's not just a head thing. But many times it has to start with the head, not just with a crisis. As I often say, having belief and a faith in Jesus Christ is not irrational, but it is super rational. It goes beyond reason, but it begins with reason. And for you, maybe you've struggled with some of the facts, or maybe you have a coworker or a friend who's struggling with the facts. And so I would like to walk through just a few thoughts as it relates to five historical facts about Jesus that will never change, whether you believe them or not, whether your friend or neighbor or family member believes them or not. These are five facts about Jesus Christ as you dive into them that will stand the test of time through all history and eternity. The first of this is this. Jesus is a real person who actually lived on earth. Now, (laughs) that's like, duh, I know that. But do you realize that a lot of times people do not believe that? That maybe it was, oh, it was so far in history past. And when you really start to get back there a thousand, two thousand years, was Jesus really there or Jesus as the scriptures talk about? But Jesus was a real person. And you begin by not looking at, oh, well, the Bible says so. Well, you can look outside the scriptures and find that Jesus was a historical person that lived. You know, in, in, in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, if you're to look up Jesus, in one edition, there are 20,000 words about Jesus. And not one of those words are bringing into question as to if he existed or not. It's a historical fact that he existed. And some of the extra biblical references stand the test of time going back into that first early first century. Tacitus, a Roman historian, he said this. Lived 55 to 120 A.D. Christus Christ suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our own procurators, Pontius Pilate. That's not in the Bible. That's in a Roman history book. And Josephus, our Jewish historian, I remember, I remember when I got the book of Josephus and all, I mean, it's a big, old, thick thing, right? Because he recorded so much of the history at that time. He wrote this, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. His disciples reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. That is not in the Bible. That's in a history book. And Josephus is declaring that there was this Jesus that we Saw him, he was crucified, if you will, said that. And some people said that that, uh, they saw him afterwards, that he was indeed alive. This is the testimony of people who lived in the first century, eyewitnesses to the whole life of Christ. Now, next week for Easter, of course, we're going to be looking at um, the evidence for the resurrection. Because behind the celebration is the historical fact. 
And you don't just have to go to scripture to see it and to understand it. So Jesus is a real person who actually lived on earth. And you almost just want to start there with some people. Do you believe Jesus lived? Do you believe he was a real person? Yeah, he's a real person. He's probably a good teacher. He's a nice guy. There's a lot of cool things about him. Some people say he's a prophet. Even Islam says that Jesus was a prophet kind of deal, right? He was a great holy man, iman or something in their perspective. So to try to deny the credibility that Jesus Christ did not exist and that he was just merely a mythical character or a legend is totally erroneous. You have to have more faith to not believe that Jesus lived than to believe that he did. The second is this. There are reliable eyewitnesses who wrote accurate records of Jesus. Now, why is this important? Well, because he may have existed, but what we know about him may be totally false from what was written. There were eight writers who claimed to be eyewitnesses of Jesus that are recorded in scriptures. Who are the eight eyewitnesses actually recorded stuff in what we have today as our Bible? What are their names? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, and the writer of the Hebrews, which could have been Paul. All right? So you have accurate records from eyewitnesses. Now, why are eyewitnesses important? Well, I'll tell you what. I want somebody who's been there, saw it, to report to me what happened. I don't want any hearsay. I don't want any scuttlebutt that's out there on the street. I want to know somebody who's actually there. And guess what? The records, as they are written down, are records that everybody would have been um, proofing, if you will, at that time. Okay? They were records where somebody said, you know, that's not true. You can't write that. We got this going all over our culture today. I don't quite understand it, the whole fake news idea, this and that. And someone has to do with social media and what's put out there and people positioning certain kinds of strains of thinking. And so we get really anxious and weary of it. But, friends, when it comes to actually recording history and historical books, you're going to try to have the eyewitnesses that are there, right? JFK, when he was shot. Some of you were alive then, right? Probably you weren't there in Dallas kind of thing, but there is a historical record. If I told you this morning that JFK was not shot from a long distance with a rifle in um, Dallas, but that he was actually shot through the head with an arrow from an Indian in San Antonio. No. All right. So, you know, at the gathering that we had last month, it was a great group, 120 of kids, adults, we're all there. And if I told you, hey, did you know at the gathering... Last month for the awakening, we had a big pizza party and there were helicopter rides for the kids. Why are you laughing? Because you were there, some of you. We didn't have a pizza party. We had a potluck and we had a bounce house for the kids. Helicopter rides maybe next time, Josh, maybe your place, right? So here's the deal. Eyewitnesses are critical to the recorded records. And so if Jesus was this historical person, then we move to say, well, what do we know about this Jesus? But we can't even move to that step unless we say, well, can we trust the documents or the recordings of that which talk about his life? And you can climb into this, and some of the statistics will probably maybe come out in the movie. I don't know. I just chose not to give them here. But there is far more, (laughs) mountains more credibility for the scriptures that we've been given than for almost all the ancient historical books. Jesus lived. Jesus did miraculous signs. Jesus made proclamations. Jesus did all kinds of ministry. Jesus, the cross, the death, the resurrection. All that we have are chronicled. And you and I have to be willing to stand on the truth of that which has been presented to us in recorded evidence. Can we trust the Bible? It's a big question. Now, sometimes I know it's a scapegoat question for some people. It's like, oh, that's, they just sort of throw that out. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But you need to make sure that you understand that this historical fact, reliability of the scriptures and the eyewitnesses can't debunk it. It's there. It says this in Luke 1, 1 through 4. This is Luke. Follower, Christ, those who followed Christ, he was around. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, does that sound like somebody's just sort of making stuff up? Exacting. Luke was a medical doctor. He was recording it from the eyewitnesses. Now, he wrote Luke, but then he also wrote what? Book of Acts. He had two volumes. All right? When did he write these? Have you ever thought about this? Acts does not record the fall of Jerusalem. It does not record the death of Paul. It does not record the death of Peter or James. And why aren't those things in the book of Acts as it talks about the first century? It's because Luke wrote Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, before those things happened. And Jerusalem fell in what year? 70 A.D. So Acts had to be written before 70 A.D. And if he wrote Luke before he wrote Acts, then that bumps it back even further. It's believed that the historical documents of the Gospels and therefore are all written between the years of 40 and 80 A.D. Jesus died somewhere in the early 30 A.D.s. And so we're talking just a mere seven years afterwards. We have this record and the people that were still alive and that saw Jesus, they were there and they would say, no, no, they didn't have helicopter rides. No, it wasn't that way. Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And and no, that's not true of Jesus. So the records were pushed back to an early time. I don't ever worry about archaeological studies and discoveries disproving. In fact, every archaeological study concerning Scripture and God and Jesus, it, it just continues to pile up more and more evidence. Oh, that was true. Oh, that was true. So many theories debunked by finding earlier manuscripts, earlier writings, right? We're going all the way back. They didn't have copy machines then, all right? They didn't have the Internet where you cut and paste, right? So they were transcribing it from one sheet to the next very accurately. And it's within just a short period of time of when the events took place, and it was recorded according to the eyewitnesses that were actually boots on the ground in those places. Second Peter says this. Peter says, For we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the power of our Lord Jesus Christ and his coming again. We have seen his majestic splendor with our own eyes. I don't know. I'm glad those things are in the scriptures. And when I read them, I go, bring it on. It's true. What's said? I'm not believing in clever stories or, you know, because, friends, I'll save you the time. You can investigate a lot of what's this time of year. It's always comes up. It's on the front cover of some magazines or whatever. Did Jesus really do this or whatever? It is historical Jesus, whatever. There's the Jesus seminar people that have been around for a number of years now. and, And they try to explain things. And they say, you know, sometimes, well, you know, the disciples sort of sat back. And after Jesus died, they said, well, that's sort of a bummer. Now, what are we going to do tomorrow? And, uh, you know, what, what could we say that Jesus is going to do tomorrow? Well, why don't we make this up? Why don't you? Uh, that's a good idea. I think that'll fly. So, uh, so they start to say things, not because they're being frivolous, but because their hearts are broken. They want to have faith. They thought this was the Messiah. They'd wave the palm branches. And so they're saying, okay, we just got to continue this on. So the next day, you know, they started to propagate these stories. And so they're true stories as it relates to what the church felt that they were to be. But they're really not the truth true truth of what Jesus actually did. And so that's how we sort of gotten these documents. And you have to do this redaction criticism and go back and try to understand what was the original intent, what was going on. It's like, hello, that hurts my brain. And the reason it hurts your brain is because it's not logical and doesn't make sense. These people were scared to death of the Romans after a crucifixion. They were out of there. They were gone except for after three days in hiding. They were told that Jesus was raised from the dead. They then saw Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Their lives and their community and their people were radically transformed because of the historical event of the resurrection. This was not made up clever stories. They ended up dying as martyrs themselves, many of them. Because they stuck to the story that was true. So, 
Reliable eyewitnesses wrote accurate records of Jesus, whether or not you want to believe it or your friends do. But again, investigate. Investigate the case for Christ. A third historical fact is this. There can be no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. Well, he never tried to bring on those accolades. I mean, we just read the whole, whole Palm Sunday thing. Can you see this? The priest and the teacher's going, hey, 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 shh, shh. even these children, shut up, kids, shut up. By the way, we're having kids lead off worship next week with some kids. That is great. Katie is leading it. That's why she's excited. But can you picture that? And you're like, okay, is this, you know, we don't want kids to be deceived growing up. And Jesus says, yep. Bring it on. Praise is worthy because he was declaring and had begun to really paint the picture clearly that he was God. In fact, that's why he ended up being crucified because he claimed not to be just a great teacher. He claimed to be God himself, and that was blasphemous to a Jewish person. Mark fourteen sixty one says this, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer when he was standing before Herod. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am. Now that that phrase, I am, has a lot of depth and breadth to it historically. Basically saying, I am that I am before Abraham was. I am. Wait a second. You couldn't have lived before Abraham. You're here in the first century kind of deal, right? He was saying, I was preexistent. I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man. He was declaring himself the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven. A clear declaration of Jesus from the accurate historical eyewitness accounts that he claimed to be God. Jesus said also in these other verses in John eight nineteen, to know him was to know God. John 14.9, to see him was to see God. John 14.1, to believe in him was to believe in God. Matthew 10.40, to receive him was to receive God. John 15.23, to hate him was to hate God. And John 5.23, to honor him was to honor God. Jesus, no doubt, claimed to be God. Number four, Jesus said that he was the only way to God and eternal life. Whoop! Okay, now it's getting deep. The only way to God? And your mind goes in all kinds of directions. Mine have too. What about those who have never heard of Jesus and those kinds of things? And that's why we had like missionaries last week, like Martin Chaya and Joanna Share. I mean, passionate people that want people to know about Christ. But historically, which we're not debating a subject as to if it was true or not in one sense what we're saying is that historically jesus said jesus said he was the only way to god and eternal life i mean when push comes to shove somebody that i believe died and came back from the dead i sort of have a tendency to believe him rather than some other people that are just topping off the top of their heads and thought Jesus said he was the only way to God and eternal life. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 10, 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Acts 4, 12, which is recorded of those who were followers of him because they followed his teachings and his teachings are embedded in this. It says this, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given by men whereby we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and people. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Now, friends, rightly so, there's skeptical thoughts here. And there's deep soul-concerning thoughts because it relates to real lives and lives matter. But we have to take up the discussion. Jesus taught this. Why did he teach this? And why can this become known to us as the truth? Even though in our world, our postmodern, relativistic, non-absolute truth culture, that is so, so offensive. It's not being nice, right? How can you exclude things? We're all together in love and harmony. We're all good. Well, I'm sure people in the Titanic thought some of the same things on that great big ship. We're all together. We're good. 
you and I need to wrestle with this particular one because I believe it's one of the biggest sticking points in reaching people for Christ today. It says this in John three fourteen through 18. It's a familiar passage. These are words of Jesus, you know. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness in the Old Testament, so I, the Son of Man, me, claim to be in the Messiah, must be lifted up on a pole, the cross, so that everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that to everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. There is no judgment awaiting those who trust him. But those who don't trust him have already been judged for not believing in the only Son of God. Most important decision you'll ever make concerns your belief in Jesus Christ and your response whether to follow him or not. The last one of these statements on the five historical facts about Jesus that will never change is this. Jesus proved what and who he was by rising from the dead. Thus, the case for Christ book and now a movie. One man's journey. Lee Strobel taking that number five on directly. Because if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, everything collapses. Everything. And as outstanding as that thought or that declaration or that reality is, he's just another religious man wrinkled up in the chronicles of history. Something happened. That's why we have Easter. That's why we have two services next week. For some reason, even when you don't necessarily go to church or have a regular pat, you think you should be there on Easter. Cultural tradition? Maybe so. More importantly, though, the resurrection, the center of it all. So those are five historical facts, whether you believe them or not. Those are things you can take up with your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Where they stand on those? Ooh, it would be a sort of a deep kind of conversation. Yeah. But remember, it hinges on the most important question. I want to read for you a story. Some of you are familiar with the story of a gentleman who um, was from another country than the Jewish people. Whatever reason, God was working on his heart. And as God was working on his heart, uh, he began to seek. He wanted to know more. We don't have his name in scriptures. We only know him as the Ethiopian the Ethiopian official or the youth and open eunuch. The story is recorded in Acts 9. It says this. There was another disciple named Philip. As for Philip, an angel of the Lord said to him, go south to the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. You see, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I mean, word was moving, man. It was moving in all kinds of directions. Those who were followers, the eyewitnesses, are like, wow, let me tell you, this is not a story. This was an event. And it was about a person that's changed my life, the Messiah, God himself. And so they were scattering, and Christianity began to spread. And here's Philip was one of those that are sojourners. Angel appears to him and says, i got a job for you. Go south down the desert road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he did, and he met the treasure of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under the queen of Ethiopia. The eunuch had gone to Jerusalem. He'd already been there to worship, and he was now returning. He was seated in his carriage, and he was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. I mean, he's, you know, he's already been to San Diego. He's coming back. He just pulls along the 15, you know, and he, he pulls out his iPhone and he looks up the scripture and he just starts reading it there on the side of the road. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, a, an angel sends a guy by the name of Philip, taps on his window and he says, hey, what's going on? He says, I, I hear you're reading something in there out loud. Can I help you?
The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and walk alongside the carriage. Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. So he asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The man replied, how can I when there is no one to instruct me? And he begged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. The passage of scripture that he was reading, which was out of Isaiah 53, says this. He was led as a lamb, as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before the shears. He did not open his mouth. This is Old Testament scripture, all right? Prophetic stuff buried deep in the Hebrew scriptures. Eunuchs reading it after Jesus rose, ascended into the heavens. He was humiliated and received no justice, it says. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. <clears throat> so the eunuch asked Philip, was Isaiah talking about himself? Was the Old Testament prophet talking about himself or someone else? So Philip began with the same scripture and then used many others to tell him the good news about Jesus. As they rode along, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, there's some water. Why can't I be baptized? He ordered the carriage to stop and they went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. He says, oh, I'll move you somewhere else. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Drove all the way into Temecula. Pretty jacked up. He was excited. <laughs> Meanwhile, Philip found himself further north of the city as Azotus. He preached the good news there and in every city along the way until he came to Caesarea. Isn't that just a little cameo? It's so cool. Here's God. And what's he found on the road headed south to Gaza? What has God found? Just, just a, a government official sitting in a chariot? No, he's found a seeker. He's found a seeker. A seeker of truth. He'd already been to Jerusalem to worship in the Jewish temple. He was not Jewish while he was there. But then he parks along the road and he's diligently looking scriptures. I've got to figure this out. He had a hungry heart. But what happened to this seeker? This seeker was stuck. He was stuck. You ever been stuck before when you're trying to figure something out? Happens to me all the time when I'm putting things together. That's why there's different projects around my house. Finally got the dishwasher fixed this week from leaking. I get stuck. I got to read more. I got to figure this out. Well, people spiritually and truth-wise, life-wise as a whole, they get stuck. And there are sticking points. And I want to list to you some sticking points that happen when you're investigating the case for Christ. Sticking point number one is this. I can't believe. I can't believe. People say, I can't believe. I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just not at a place that I can do that because, you know, I'm sort of wired a certain way and there's just not enough evidence for me or other things are going on. The scientists may say, I can't believe the Bible because it conflicts with science. A mother of a sick child could be heard saying, I can't believe in God who permits my precious girl to suffer when so many evil people thrive. Or maybe it's the lawyer who says, I'm used to dealing with evidence, facts, data, and logic. I can't believe in something we're asked to accept on faith. A business person might explain, I prayed my business would succeed, but it's going down the tubes. I can't believe in a God who ignores my prayers. Now, these people are sincere. Maybe you're seated here this morning. You're sincere. But there's sincerity. that It wells up within you and you say, I can't believe. Because there's these obstacles, there's a lack of knowledge maybe, there's a lack of understanding a story. Own it, it's fine. You can get stuck. But just don't leave that project setting aside in your house. Get at it. Try to figure it out. Fix it. You have friends and neighbors who they got stuck somewhere. I just can't believe. That's nice for you. You need to help them get unstuck. That's why we're encouraging you to... Take your five postcards and invite people. All right? I gave two to some people yesterday that, or two days ago that I, I have been praying for diligently. One for a couple years and the other couple for just a few months. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know, I don't know if something simple like this might get them to show up at church to discover the evidence. Or maybe I just need to speak. Maybe more directly. I don't know. It's okay to be stuck because we all get stuck but to stay in your stuckness is not good and to ignore those who are stuck 
I think is very poor of us. I can't believe. A second sticking point is this. I don't want to believe. Now, this one, this one you just don't like to be honest about a lot of times. There's moral issues, intimacy issues, and authority issues in this one that come into play. But this one isn't like, hey, there's not evidence there that I can't believe. If I'm honest with you, I don't want to believe. Maybe it's a moral issue. Maybe the person's involved in something that's unethical. Maybe they're having an affair. Who knows what the moral issue may be. But there's something going on in their life, and they know that if they turn their hearts and their thoughts and their lives towards Christ, that they're going to have to change their ways. And so this really isn't an intellectual issue. It's a lifestyle issue. You've been there? Maybe it has to do with your own life as it seeks following the Lordship of Christ. Maybe it's intimacy issues. You know, a lot of people, they don't, they're not close to anybody. They're not close to their spouse. They have a superficial relationship with their kids. And the idea of getting to know someone and that person, knowing you intimately in a relationship like Jesus Christ offers, uh, I don't think so. Other people, maybe other people, it's authority issues. I just don't want somebody to be in charge of my life. Well, here's the problem with that particular thing. I always keep this like, well, who do you think Jesus is? you think he's out to ruin your front, destroy you, to be a meanie over you? Or do you not understand that he wants to give you forgiveness? He wants to give you adventure. He wants to clean your, give you a clean conscience. You're missing out on the security that you're going to have in him, the guidance, the hope, the fulfillment, the relationship, the comfort, the peace of mind, love, release from guilt, the power to overcome self-destructive impulses, and the promise of eternity. There are so many great things you're missing out on. That's what life with Christ can be about. But if they're honest, they don't want to believe. It's an authority issue. Here's a quote from Otis Huxley. He wrote a book called Ends and Means. He is a well-known atheist, a literature, uh, very famous person. He died on the same day that C.S. Lewis and JFK did. Here in Southern California, I believe, is where he passed away, from England. Huxley says this, well-known atheist, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had none. And was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain set of political and economic systems and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Oh, well. At least you're being honest. Some people don't want to believe. But do they really know what Christ has to offer? Or they had a caricature. Maybe somebody they experienced in the past who was just a maybe a religious bigot or, or a, a very dogmatic person. Someone who did not know what it meant, as our mission statement does at this church, to be fully alive in Christ and to his mission. Sticking point number three can be, I don't know what to believe. Spent a lot of time here. The unique. What did he say? Was this Isaiah writing about himself or was it someone else? There is such a prolifer of all different kinds of ideas and pathways. Even people have interpretations of the Bible. This and this. So It's overwhelming to people. It's like, I'll just live in a pluralism where everything sort of has its own day. And what your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, and let's just all get along and be nice. I don't know what to believe. And the last sticking point is, I do believe, isn't that enough? This is where it comes back to where we started. The most important decision you will ever make concerns your belief in Jesus Christ and your response whether to follow him or not. And you'll see that in the life story of Lee Strobel. That it was one thing to believe, but then you have to take the step to respond to follow him. Maybe you're a seeker here this morning. Maybe you're going to bring a seeker next week for Easter. I want to encourage you this, to do four things. One, I want to encourage you um, to have a hungry heart, of course, but to take that hungry heart and put it into action. I want to encourage you uh, to go see the movie. 
All right. Whether it's not it's not in a lot of theaters. We actually I think have the only showing at uh, Temecula Theater right now. Um, but you, you can find us showing. Go see the movie. I want to encourage you to um, take time to um, seek in your own spirit and diligently study the scriptures. And you might need some help doing that. So the third thing is I want to encourage you to uh, be a part of a series group. Just write the word group on the back of your connection card. We'll receive it when we receive the offering here in a second. And then the fourth thing, and another reason maybe to come next week, um, the Case for Christ book that was written off this movie dives deeply into so much of this. Uh, But it's a little maybe overwhelming to you to read thick books or whatever. It's not that thick. But um, uh, we have a condensed version of the book of um, questions that come from the Case for Christ book. And we're going to give you a copy of that next week. Right, give your friend a copy of that. And it has to do with the, the questions, the questions that are behind this. Because people are stuck. Maybe you're stuck. But do not just set the project aside in your house. Put it front and center and say, let's figure this out. Who is Jesus? And what does my response to Jesus need to be? Because there is no greater love that you will ever experience than the love that comes down from heaven through God's Son, Jesus Christ, and His Holy Spirit who is here. So let's pray. Worship team is going to come and close us in a song. And we'll receive the Lord's offerings and your connection cards. But I want to pray for you, especially if you're here this morning. And as a seeker, you want to know more. Or maybe today you want to know Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that you would take our hearts that we sought to lay before you to hear from you and that you would speak more and more truth into them. Not truth to the point of just having loaded up knowledge, but truth as found in you as a person to be able to be set free as you said truth would and that in you we can have life. So Lord, give us a hunger for the truth. Lord, stack the truth before us in your presence. And Lord, may we make that decision in our lives to believe in you as the Son of God, God himself. And that as our belief in you stands, we would then respond with hearts of devotion to follow you as mere infants and children. Lord, I pray here this morning, if there's anyone in this room who has a desire to commit their life to you, that they would just simply in the quietness of their own spirit as we sing this song, yield to you, asking for forgiveness of their sins, maybe their indifference, double-mindedness, maybe their stubbornness, maybe their standing opposed to you as a leader, an authoritarian, authority person in their life. But they'll yield. Lord, may they just pray that prayer of repentance, asking and inviting you to come into their life, responding to you, and that from this day forward, as you enable, they will live for you. Lord, if that be their prayer, that may be a prayer of quietness sung as we close with with these words of a hymn. There is no greater love that's found in you. We thank you for pouring out your love, especially in light of this Passion Week that we celebrate. 